Hey, everybody. It's uh, Tech Chat Tuesday on a Tuesday, no less, oh, yeah. uh, from yeah. Chariot Solutions. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. And we are here this week. Yeah, that's that's true. We are here this week broadcasting uh, in person in the office, which is cool. A um, couple things. We did have the uh, Tech Summit for Women. Uh, th that is up on the YouTube site. Um, where is it on here? This is it. This looks like the playlist. Let's see, playlists. Tech Training for Women, a guided tour full stack. So um, this is the full, uh, all the sessions from that uh, show that happened, I guess it was early last week, if I remember correctly. Um, and so the, all the videos are there. There are talks, whoops, sorry. There are talks uh, on design principles, a survey of front-end frameworks, best practices, modern web development, basics of RESTful UI, and DevOps for developers, all delivered uh, by Friends of Chariot and Chariot people as well. Um, so that's available if you're interested in checking that out. It's one of our shows. Um, we're beginning to uh, talk about Philly Emerging Technology for the Enterprise 2023. Stay tuned for the news on that when that comes up. Uh, so a couple of things. You can find our blog where we're writing a lot of different stuff. Um, I just put up an article which we'll talk about the topic of, which is Next.js 13. Uh, but you'll see if you, you kind of scroll through the list, we've got some big data talks, CDK, um, looking at mobile applications, looking at our 20th anniversary, um, you know, a fair amount of serverless stuff right now, but we've had also a lot of other topics like things in Go and uh, JavaScript and, uh, you know, other like, you know, just general reviews of tech and industries, IoT. So that's at chariotsolutions.com slash blog. Feel free to check that out. And uh, so without further ado, uh, why don't we start in with our dev news for the week? First one's really interesting to me. And, you know, I almost should double check this because it's a day later. Uh, but the, the right to repair movement in the United States is a big deal. And so please go away, ad. Thank you. Um, so the right, the right to repair is giving people the right to take their devices and open them up and fix them uh, and have people do third party fixes of those devices without being sued by the companies uh, that have, you know, copyrighted, trademarked, patented those devices. Um, and so New York is the first state legislator, uh, legislature that, that actually has a right to repair bill that has passed both of the houses of uh, the uh, of the legislature. Wow. Uh, it basically makes it. Yeah, it makes it uh, obliges the technology manufacturers, according to this Boing Boing article, uh, to make tools and parts available to independent repair shops. When does um, it take effect? Well, uh, that's the thing right now. Uh, Kathy Holcomb. Uh, Hochul, I don't know how to say her last name, but it's, I think it's Hochul, who is the New York uh, state governor. It's mm -hmm. going to be on her desk to sign. So once it's signed, I I'm sure there's got to be a, you know, a period of built it in because it's right. not like you can get the parts instantly. That's so I thought Massachusetts had one. I guess they had, they don't, they've been trying for a long time. They've been trying to, but okay. uh, yeah. So, so apparently this is like the first one. Okay. Uh, and, and, and that would be a big deal because that means the companies really do have to pay attention to that or pull their products from, you know, New York in that yeah, case. Like John Deere is a big yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. John Deere, definitely with all the hardware. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Firmware updates that shut down the tractor we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So anyway, I don't know why I'm scrolling through all the other goofy stuff there. But uh, oh, there it is. As I'm yeah. scrolling down, John, John Deere. Deere jailbreak. So it's all built on outdated, unpatched hardware. <laughs> I love, is, that like a little, is that a little kid on the thing? <laughs> it, yeah, it's like a little kid on a tractor. There you go, Rob Bashiza. 
I like that. I'll have to read that one for next time, I guess. It's funny that people think that people will still be riding tractors. Like that, that, that it should, there should be no human on that is what is eventually going to be. Yeah. Yeah. True. Oh, these ads are killing me on these sites. I got to turn on my ad blocker. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's uh, story. Number one is taking a look at where we're headed with right to repair. So John, what do you think of that? What's your opinion? Um, this is a very interesting question. Cause I'm torn. I mean, on the yeah. one hand, I think if you buy something, you own that and you should be allowed to reasonably repair it. Yeah. You shouldn't be prevented from doing that. But at the same time, like how far can you take it with a corporation? Like what can you force them to do and not to do? So it's like, it's not clear cut in my opinion. I wish it was just like, Hey, companies should try to do the right thing, but how do you codify that? Right what kind of issues does it open up in terms of things like reliability and, you know, um, there's all sorts of questions. So we'll have to see where it goes. I could see both sides of it as well. Um, but I remember the, the old days where you used to be able to take something and go to Radio yeah, Shack and which is awesome. get parts and solder it and fix yeah. it. You know? I mean, we used to use this guy that in the eighties that could, I think he could fix anything. We've taken our lawnmower there, taking the microwave there, taking the TV there. You just take whatever it is. And usually this dude would be able to fix it. My grandfather used to take tubes out of a TV and fix the TV. I remember we went to New York City once when I was a kid. Um, my, my aunt lived in Greenwich Village. And one of the things he did when he went there was bring a box of tubes, take the old tubes out, bring them to the tester at the store, find out which ones were dead, put new tubes in. I just thought that was fascinating, you know? Yeah. Tubes. The only place I still find tubes are in guitar amps. Did you know that? You can still buy amps that use tubes. That's a thing. It's a whole thing. So like, I wonder if things like this will, if, if this spreads and more states approve this, what does that do overall? Are they, it, like, is it going to, will companies start building things to be more reliable to begin with so they don't break down as often and then charge mm -hmm. more up front? So it's like, hey, it's not going to get, break down as often because there's a lot of planned obsolescence out there, let's be honest. So sure. make it better make it more reliable and last for longing and charge more for it. And, you know, I'd be willing to pay for something that's proven to last longer and pay more for it versus like, Hey, it's going to break down and you're going to have to repair it. If they're not going to collect revenue on repairing that anymore, what does that mean? I mean, hopefully there's a, hopefully the second order effects are good out of all this. I don't know. I, I think Apple tried to get ahead of that when they started offering the ability to rent their repair kits. Right. But then apparently you get like a Mack truck worth of repair parts, you know, but, but you, they're, trying to offer an option for third-party repairers who can go right. through a process to repair things. So they, they've been thinking this is coming in for a while. The real question is there's 50 states in the United States. So what weird combinations of laws are we going to deal with? Like, exactly. Do you have to have Phillips screws in one place and a T6 wrench in another? Who knows? But what, uh, so what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I feel like it, it sounds like a great idea, but the implementation could be all the problems, right? It, 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 I don't, I wonder how legislatures are going to actually put together a reasonable right to repair and then how to sweep it across the nation. If it's going to be a nationwide law, that seems to make more sense yeah. because you've got one regulation to fit. But, you know, like California has always gone early for things like the cafe standards and, you know, automobile and pollution and things like that. And yeah. then the country has followed through eventually sometimes to do that. Yeah. But if there's like two states that do it and their laws don't quite match up, what do you do? Yeah. That's where my, I'm confused. My pessimistic self thinks that this is not going to spread or really take hold because right. 
there'll be enough lobbying to prevent it. <laughs> right. Oh, there's got to be a lot of lobbying to prevent yeah. it. So we'll stay tuned. I'm sure we're going to talk about this more, especially if it passes to see what the, the knock-on effects are for sure. All right. That's article one. Um, I just flagged this uh, from the ACM. I, I do love this topic. Um, you know, you hear this all the time, right? Uh, don't prematurely optimize, of course. Um, you know, don't sit there and finely tune the indexes of tables you haven't figured out yet, for example. Um, but unfortunately, um, there have been a fair number of people, according to this article, they're, they're bringing this up, and I've seen it too, that basically say, well, then we should do zero optimization. Worry about optimization at the very end of the project. And realistically, what this article is getting at, and I, I urge you to hey, join the ACM and purchase the PDF of the actual article so we don't uh, get in trouble here, um, is that you know, if you're a seasoned developer and you've gone through a lot of things before, you're going to slightly optimize things. You're going to write good code where you can. And so don't use premature optimization as, as a crutch for hurry up and build it no matter the quality. And we'll yeah. worry about whether it runs well or, yeah. in the last month of like, the project. Try to be overly clever, make code unreadable, or, yeah. you know, until you've collected some data, you may not know what you actually need to optimize. For sure. For sure. That almost is like a no kidding. So we'll move on from there. And I lost my bookmark. So wait, I guess a uh, quick question. Yeah. Is ahead. this article just reiterating that fact or is something uh, special or specific in here? Or just teaching so, a new generation of programmers what we what we already learned. It's it's more uh, of the latter. Uh, okay. It's kind of getting into the fact. Like I, I don't want to dig too deep into the article. I don't want to kind of put the ACM upset at me because they're selling gotcha. a PDF, obviously. But absolutely worth through. getting a membership, by the way, folks. Like you get a lot of stuff with an ACM membership. I mean, the access to all their material and information, books. I mean, there's a ton of stuff. It's totally worth getting. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, if you do get one, read that article. It it goes into a lot of the things that doing some basic thinking around good programming techniques uh, brings you and what can happen if you like really take this absolutist and say, nope, we don't have time for any kind of thinking through the basics of writing good software. So, all right. My titles aren't in here, so it's a little difficult. Oh, this one's really cool. This isn't, this is tech in, in the marginal sense. It's more of a study, but I find this fascinating. Um, it turns out that there's this concept of lucid dreaming where you really feel like you're in control of things when you're dreaming and you can kind of make decisions, choose your own adventure. It's happened to me before. Oh, you've had this? Cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know if cool, but neat. Um, so it turns out that they, they had a study where they got a, a bunch of people together uh, lucid dreamers and 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 people that I think uh, were close to lucid dreaming, and they had people outside of the dream communicating with them at their bedsides to try to make them answer questions like math problems. And the people in the lucid dreaming state, some of them could answer those problems and communicate while they were in their dreams, and then go back, I believe, and remember that they were communicating. Ooh, so okay. is this like a new way of hacking people's brains and getting their passwords and stuff? I think that's the fear. <laughs> Oh my god! I mean, probably not, but it's interesting. What uh, if your What if your phone is listening? You write an app to ask questions out loud while they're sleeping, and you, it records whatever you're answering. Oh my god! So we play a game at home. My my wife is well known for talking in her sleep, and if you talk to her in her sleep, she mutters something back. So the big running gag my daughters and I and sons have done for like ten years is to ask her what the aliens are doing right now, and she usually answers. And it's using a smart aleck answer. 
Oh, and she doesn't hilarious. remember any of it. So, so apparently I've known this before. Or she's pulling own. your chain. She could be. I spoke a lot in college. My roommates told me I always, I always talked in my sleep. and But luckily it was in a different language so they didn't understand what I was saying. Thank <laughs> God. Lucky you. Yeah. All right. All right. Deno 1.27 is out. Deno is the person who created Node uh, realized at some point that Node didn't serve the purposes he originally felt it should and it wasn't architected the way he wanted it to be. So he left and he created a new language called, or a new platform called Deno, which is a Java runtime, JavaScript runtime. And uh, so you can install it just like you can install Node. You can get into a REPL. You can start up JavaScript projects. There's uh, native APIs. It's got some compatibility with Node, um, but it's, uh, it's a different platform. And 1.27 has been released. Apparently they're working on their tooling right now. So the, the big discussion is that there's language server and IDE improvements. This is on deno.com's blog. Um, so for example, it's TypeScript native out of the box. You fire it up, you're running TypeScript. Uh, it doesn't have to transpile it. It just interprets and runs TypeScript. So you don't need a build tool for that. Um, uh, it has things like uh, inlay hints, which I'm going to try and at, uh, drag time to find. I think this is showing like radix colon here is like hints for the parameters for parsing like string and radix and things like that. What it's doing is it's feeding that information to an IDE. So if you're running an IDE, it can do, you know, language server hints to you in your tooling, which is kind of nice. Um, kind of like what you see with Java. Um, or with like the types of plugin plug in and, and uh, in your build tools. So there's a bunch of settings there, um, completions. So like there's, I guess you can hook up to a registry and get completions from that particular registry of features uh, and so on. So Deno is out. I don't know. I, I've played with Deno for about five minutes, but if you're using Deno out there, let us know. I'd be curious to see what people are doing in the wild with it. I was going to ask you, are there, who are the major backers or sponsors of it? Is it being used in any major projects? I don't know. Honestly, uh -huh. I don't know. I'd like to find that out, though. Definitely an area that I'm interested in. Um, and I know, you know, Node is the predominant one people are using out there. So it'd be interesting to know. I know we had a talk uh, on Deno uh, at the um, Remix Run conference, and they were showing how easy it was to run Remix on Deno. Uh, but that's the, the the most recent time I've seen it. And before that, I heard nothing. So I don't know how popular it is out there. Okay. So hit us up. Uh, you can, you know, email us at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com to give us. Note it's so widespread now. I mean, so insanely widespread. I, I mean, I haven't looked into Dennis, so I don't know, but they have a huge battle, I guess, ahead of them, right? Because uphill battle in terms of yeah. adoption. Okay. Something has to break, I think, you know, seriously in their favor for a lot of people to switch because, yeah, what's what's the barrier to get into to Node right now? Zero, you know, everything runs on Node. So I would love to hear the opposite case and find out what what makes it so compatible with Node and then advantageous in the performance perspective, perhaps, or more secure or better features in some way to really make, make a shift. To me, right. it, it has to have a very low barrier to switch. So we'll have to see. All right. Oh, I don't want to play these. <laughs> Let me talk about the next JS conference. Um, so I was looking around for tech news, and I noticed the next JS conf was coming up last week, last Tuesday. Uh, Next.js is a server rendered and uh, server powered 
uh, React-based uh, web application platform. So imagine you have a, a React app that downloads to the client. Well, what Next and what Remix and other tools like it do is they render some of that stuff on the server side, ship you preloaded views, uh, maybe even pre-compiled at build time for static content. Uh, and they just really accelerate the process of starting up and visiting your first page and of getting access to data from other pages. You can check out my talk from ETE 2022 on this. Um, so I have a talk on, on uh, Next.js and Remix, kind of going through both of them. Uh, so when I saw the Next 13 was out, I thought, oh, this is a good thing to check out. And so Next.js 13 was released, and they have all the videos up online now from the conference. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of major improvements and changes in Next.js. Let me just bring my notes up real quick while I'm talking. The biggest one is they have something called Turbo Pack. Uh, now, TurboPack was created by the person who created Webpack. Webpack is a very popular build tool that's used to take all the JavaScript imports you have in, in your various JavaScript files, munge them all into one file and serve it, or several files and serve it on a website. Mm -hmm. And so it's a build tool, uh, you know, aggregating scripts together and doing all sorts of specific, special things using plugins and things like that. Um, so... The, the Vercel team hired the guy that created Webpack, which is now at version five point something, maybe even on its way to six. So it's a very established, very, sorry, very uh, popular tool that's being used all over the place. And uh, so they hired him and said, let's build a better Webpack. You know, we want to do this for Next.js 13 uh, and then ultimately roll it out as the next build tool uh, for other groups to use. And so they came up with this thing called TurboPack. And TurboPack... The marketing on it is that it runs 20 plus times faster than other build tools at putting together content and serving it, uh, specifically in things like hot module reloading. Now, I should preface this by saying TurboPack is in alpha right now. So it's part of Next.js 13, but to enable it, you have to do a little flag dash dash dev when you start up your Next.js server. And it only really does work for the development mode while you're actually interactively, iteratively developing your code. Uh, and then he uses this tool called uh, Hot Module Reloading, which uh, everyone is using uh, when they're developing web applications in React and Angular and Deep and Vue and you name it. Um, it just basically sends a WebSocket message ping to the browser to reload something, whether it reloads an individual component and that's the point of Hot Module Reloading. Just reload what's changed so that it's very, very quick to reload things. And that's where they're saying the acceleration is ridiculously fast. It's I'm putting a quarter in a jar for every buzzword, keyword, framework, acronym you're using, and I think I'm ready to go to the arcade now. Are you rich yet? I'm getting We're there. Be rich at the end of this. Um, so anyway, so the marketing literature around it and the hype around it is very high. Um, again, it's in alpha. It could be really, really great. I have launched it, and yes, things load pretty quickly. Um, but again, because it's an alpha, I've had some goofy little jitters where it doesn't load the page and you refresh and then it reloads the page. And so I don't know if that's just me or it was just, you know, uh, some bugs in the alpha. But it is certainly new. Uh, it is something where the person who created a very popular uh, build tool built it and they built it in Rust. This is to replace SWC, which was the build tool they were using before this uh, as their accelerator build tool. And that uh, they brought in instead of things like using um, Babel to, to transpile things and things like roll up to put things together. So that was the big announcement was 
turbo pack and they have a whole uh there's a whole engineering discussion which is well worth it uh one of their lead engineers on the project goes through and talks about all the things they've done to work on it which i think is great uh some other things they did they looked at what was going on with server-based react components in things like remix which is very popular uh other tool that does similar things and they said you know what we need a better templating engine for our pages to assemble our pages from check you know you can start out with a, with a template as a top and a bottom, and maybe the top has your menu on it and the bottom is whatever you're routing to. And then you break that further up and you've got a sub route and a sub route. So they've created a multi-level router uh, that is now fully using React server components by default. So when you build a, if you build something in a directory called app, um, you build uh, TSX or JSX components in app, by default, they will be server-side rendered components without you doing anything. You can change that, and you can put a, a little moniker like use client at the top of the script, and then they'll be compiled to JavaScript components in the browser running in React in the browser. And they can have state and interact with things, um, but by default, they're server-generated. So the other thing is, when they're doing that, they also looked at what they were doing in Remix, and... The way Next.js works right now, they have a lot of different custom callbacks that you uh, do, like for rendering the server-side data, um, you know, and for generating server-side content if you're building content at build time. They're all special uh, methods that you put in the module file. Now they've just decided you're just going to use plain old fetch. You know, the fetch API that all the browsers use, we're going to embed that. So if you build a component in the app directory, you can just use fetch like you would on a browser. I hit that one more time. Lose my mind. Um, you can hit fetch like you would do in a browser. So what you're doing is literally doing an HTTP get from the server-side component, taking the data, rendering it in line, but using what you would use on the client side, which, by the way, is the big push that Remix did. So that's how Remix does their components, by using fetch on the server-side and HTTP you know, APIs and things like that. So these two teams, at least, and maybe more, are kind of looking at each other and lapping each other every six months or so and finding innovations. You know, first let's start out with server rendering and then server generation and then incremented static, incremental static generation. And now it's templating and, you know, it's using the fetch API and native APIs for the web on the, on the server side. So there's a lot going on. I encourage you to check out next 13 because there are a lot of changes in it and they let it all out. Uh, with lots of presentations and three different YouTube streams uh, to take a look at. There's a, there's a lot going on. That's like the understatement of the year. I think you killed oh. a thousand kittens with that update. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. So anyway, so there is a lot going on there. Um, we will put a link to all three of the video streams so you can check out and see what's going on. If you're using Next.js, surprise, your cheese got moved across the street to something slightly different in the future. Uh, it is It is more powerful and also different to program if you leave things in the pages directory, it doesn't change anything for you. So you could upgrade and try out the new browser, uh, the new build tool rather. Um, but if you want to take advantage of templating, it's going to break your components. So, so that's that. All right. By the way, that team at Next.js kept referencing RFC 0227, the server modules convention RFC from the React team. And so this is a new take on the original server components proposal, which is what Remix was wrestling with a little bit. 
um, and trying to implement. And then they said, you know what? Server-side components aren't ready. And they decided to do their own thing in Remix. Um, they did their own implementation of server-side components. Uh, and now, now that this RFC is here, I suspect that the Remix team will go back and implement this. But uh, this is where the changes are. If you would like to make a component or client-side component, you use use client. This is very similar to use strict. It's a weird string that you see at the top of the script and it activates a mode and that turns it into a client component. So the compiler is walking through as it's getting ready to build things. It says, oh, that's a client component. I'll put that in the build materials that's coming down for the client and it'll go in the client script. Um, if you want to use a server side component, it's use server and I'm looking for that. Of course, I won't be able to find it. Uh, it's a client over server only. Clearly, I've not read the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, I think they were talking about saying use server. So there apparently is a use server as well. Uh, but definitely when you have server-side builds by default, use client says switch to client. So take a look at this if you're going to get involved in Next 13 so you get an idea of what they were implementing based on. And they said they were working back and forth with the React team as they were building Next.js. They said that, so I'm not sure what the React team will comment with. But... They've been working together apparently on implementing this spec to make sure that they're doing server-side components and client-side components per the next version of the RFC. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes, which will be on the YouTube channel and on our podcast. All right. Already talked about right to repair. Oh, now another piece of news. Like you said, things are running so fast. I need safety straps so I don't fly off the train. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to fly off the train. <laughs> yeah. So Shopify um, decided to acquire the Remix run team. That's big news if you're a Remix developer, because that means that's a company with profits being able to fund the Remix. So, so the Remix run team has been purchased. Purchased. They've been hired by the Shopify uh, team. Uh, and so Shopify is a big uh, e-commerce uh, team out there, the company that runs a lot of online shops. And so now the thing is they've got funding. They've got a bit of a runway. They are going to make them uh, or ask them to participate in working on the back end for Shopify, of course. Sure. So I think it'll be porting Shopify's back end to Remix or adding new features based mm -hmm. on Remix. Um, but what they're saying in there in, in the, press release uh, is that they are moving the web forward. So I'm assuming this means they're not going to end Remix Run. They're just going to be a sponsored platform that Remix Run happens to run on. That would be the goal. Um, it's really funny. Uh, I think it was uh, Michael, Michael Jackson, one of the two founders, was like, people keep saying, hey, I'm glad to hear you were bought by Spotify. He's like, Shopify. <laughs> and then someone else was like, no, that was Netlify, right? So everyone's having fun at their expense today on Twitter. It's kind of funny. Um, so we'll see where that goes. You know, that puts Vercel, hosting company, bringing money in and funding a lot of JavaScript development uh, is where Next.js is hosted sure. uh, and, and, and platformed. And uh, Remix is now part of Shopify. So Congratulations we'll to the Remix team. Yeah. It's good news for them in this very JavaScript heavy thing. All right, Sue John, pull a little kit. Sure. Give me one second. $129. So 
this is like those mixed reality headsets you've been hearing about like back in the day of i guess it's not back in the day it feels like back in the day google cardboard um yeah. ar lenovo's ar uh set google daydream stuff like that so this is another version kind of along those lines where you attach an iphone so it's directly driven by powered by an iphone um and unlike other vr headsets you're not staring at the cell phone screen at all the mm -hmm. iphone's mounted up and away from your eyes um, instead, you're looking through a glass in a 60 degree field of view. Um, so you can see the physical world around you. Like you're just looking through lens. You're looking at if I'm sitting in this room, I see the room, the iPhone's up here away from me. Um, and the rear cameras on the iPhone are used to basically take in the feed and manage the experience. So they mirror that in stereoscopic vision to the lenses. So rear cameras comes in mirrored to the lenses that you're looking through. So you can basically see 3D objects embedded in the real world. Um, the idea around that is you can move around virtual objects in the real world, anchored in position. You can play a game. You can like even duck the dodge blast according to the article. Um, so I haven't tried something like this. Actually, I haven't even checked how much it costs or when it's coming out. But and whether you know, Wait, what's it's one hundred and twenty nine dollars. Wow. So it's I don't know ridiculous. what the sweet spot's going to be here. Is it for folks that don't want to pay for things like the Quest? Or, yeah. you know, the HTC Vive, et cetera. Obviously, this is far, far cheaper than that. So yeah. what, what's the sweet spot going to be? Are there certain use cases for AR where you can just stick an iPhone in and done is good enough for what you're going to need if for like something work related or healthcare related? I don't know. That'd be really cool if someone can figure out how to make this performant enough to work for those kind of use cases. That could severely like lower the barrier to entry in a lot of fields to try out AR and to play around with it. So I'm definitely like very curious to see how this is going to play out and how well it actually works. Um, and these phones are just getting smarter and smarter and, and more processing power. Cameras are getting better. So I'm sure that there's some use cases that this will be fantastic for. So I'm definitely, uh, I, the, to me, the game changer is that you can, it, that it's actually AR. Right. Right. Um, so it's using AR kit, for example, right from the iPhone. So you're programming an AR kit but instead of like moving your phone around to look at stuff, you're Move just your looking at it on, on an actual, you know, through your eyes That's on a lens. That's amazing. You know, it's funny. My sons have uh, whatever, which one, the, X, the Xbox one. Um, and they're, they're like playing it all the time. I get dizzy on those things. But, <laughs> you know, they have the AR version where like they can see ahead of them. I guess there, there is some sort of camera on those things. So, but it's certainly not AR kit, you know, it's, it's, it's proprietary stuff. So this should be fun. This should certainly open up some options. Yeah, it does. You so can, just, to be, yeah, you just can to be buy, curious. you can buy the headset right now. The app yeah. is still a controlled beta. You can only get access to it through test flight. I see. Um, but still that's a, uh, that's really cool. Yeah. This is Julian Chakatu's uh, article in Wired. So we'll post a link to that. Yeah. I saw that in there. It's like, um, what is it? Exactly what you could do with the whole kit is limited right now. There's just a handful of experiences. One is like casting spells. I think your daughter might love that one. <laughs> yes. I'm not even going to tell um, her about it. She's going to want yeah. it immediately. You'll, you'll never see your phone again, but yeah, pretty oh, cool. Hey, Christmas big. is coming too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know much? So the article does mention something that I have not linked it to. I don't know if you know about WebXR. No. WebXR. Looking at LinkedIn. The WebXR device API provides access to input I wonder if that's one of those um, Mozilla. Yeah, it's you know. 
so basically provides yeah, an output capabilities commonly associated with virtual reality and augmented reality device. It allows you to develop and host VR and AR experiences on the web. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. That's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like it's, you know, some new potential standard. I'll have to check that out. Oh. All right. Neat. Yeah. WebXR. We'll come back to that later and see what WebXR is maybe. All right. Next one. All right. Bring your own password manager. So this is pretty cool too. You're basically taking a Raspberry Pi Zero. Um, you're taking Nginx, Docker, Bitwarden. For the folks that don't know, Bitwarden's essentially like a free open source password manager. It's really good, actually. It works really well. There is some cloud-hosted version as well, I believe. You can run it on the cloud for free, or you can run it just locally, so it's only on one of your machines. Mm -hmm. um, password manager and secrets manager. And apparently this is like, you know, take your own. So you have this enclosure, you have the Raspberry Pi, it's running an Nginx server, a dockerized version of Bitwarden as a server, has a hardware button to activate it, connect it via USB to whatever machine you're working on. And basically then you get a Bitwarden server that you can access for and fill out passwords, et cetera. So it's, you're taking your password and security with you. If you don't trust the cloud, you don't trust having it on a machine but you trust having it on a device that you can hold on to and, and take with you anywhere. So um, I guess it's like a, I don't know if it's like a cheaper, more general purpose version of like the, you know, the key fobs that are out there right now for, for, you know, MFA, because this is more general purpose because you can store passwords for many different websites and, and other things. So I, you know, I may play around with this and even try it out myself to see how it goes. I, you know, as a disclaimer, am a Bitwarden user. I've had a oh, really okay. experience with it um, the last two years. Now, most of the people I know use LastPass, and I'm going to test that out as well because I've heard excellent things about it. But so far, Bitwarden does what I need locally. Yeah, I use one password, but um, yeah. sorry, not LastPass. I meant I used, sorry. Yeah. Erase everything I just said about that. <laughs> Add recommendation. I meant to say one pass. I used to use LastPass, and yeah. For reasons we don't need to get into here, I switched I switched over to Bitwarden, and many people have gotcha. switched away from LastPass. But yes, OnePass is the other really good one that a lot of folks use. This is good to know because I'm always looking for something else. I I use OnePassword and I find it very clunky. Um, you know, just kind of makes you constantly keep re-entering your password, even though you're set up and running on your session. Makes me crazy. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting use case for a Raspberry Pi Zero. I like that. Yeah. In my opinion. And I mean, it looks bigger than it is. Because Raspberry Pi Zero is about, you know, that big. You're right. Actually, yeah, it does look bigger than it is. Like, that looks massive. But really, it's tiny. It You're right. <laughs> how big is it? Wait, so how big is the Pi Zero? Oh, it's like, it's like you know. Oh. It's like a small board. So this is not that much bigger than a key fob. Not terribly, no. Oh, wow. Okay. Ooh. I don't think so. All right. So this is running, like, Linux Debian on Pi Zero. Um, a, this is a fun project. Yeah. Yeah, fun. And if you like shell scripting, my God, here it is. If you like what? <laughs> if you like shell scripting, you're going to do a whole lot of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but no, it looks like a fun hobby thing, too. And then if you if you end up with something nice and safe and you could keep it on your person for when you do work. Exactly. You can take great. it anywhere with you and you don't have to use cloud hosted service. You don't have to worry about being tied to one machine. So that's pretty, pretty neat, in my opinion. I guess the only thing better than that would be a pre-built key fob that does the same thing. That would be even better. But right. very cool. All right, I like it. And we have one more. Yeah. Here it comes. Chip design shifts. 
as fundamental laws run out of steam. I saw this too. So I'm let curious me, what your uh, take is. Let me bring this uh, article up itself on my own. So at a high level, things are changing a lot in, in the world of chips and they have been. So it's not like this stuff yeah. is new at all, but three very, I guess, governing laws around chip performance over the, over the last decades that have held true for a long time, Amdahl's law, Dennard scaling and Moore's law, which I'll, I'll define in a second, are essentially, we've reached the limits on each of those laws. They're, they no longer hold true. So Amdahl's law is basically that says, you know, if you try to parallelize a program, you can get certain fraction fractional speed up, right? It's not like if I can split it into five parts, I get a 5x speed up. It is governed by which pieces of your program still need to run sequentially. That limits yeah. how much parallelization you can get. Well, we're reaching the limits of how much parallelization we can do. Dennard scaling and Moore's law go hand in hand. So Dennard scaling says that for a given area, um, as you add more transistors, the power consumption stays the same or goes down. So like, you know, thermally, you're still able to fit more transistors without, without thermal leakage and, and without a massive increase in power assumption. You can control it. That no longer holds true either now where there's so much thermal leakage that wow. it doesn't work anymore. And Moore's law, which says like, you know, every two years, essentially your transistor account doubles on an uh -huh. integrated circuit, no longer holds true either. So what they're basically saying is like, wow, these things that we've depended on for decades, we've reached the limits of those. So we can't just keep doing what we've been doing. So what does that mean for chip design? And what does it mean for software programmers as well? So on the yeah. chip design side, it means they have to get really creative there, you know, as we see with the M1 and like heter these heterogeneous chipsets that are not, that, you know, you have different things going on. Like you have, you know, memory that's shared, memory that's split up. You have graphics intensive things. You have very high performance specific cores. You have, you know, single threaded cores. You have um, high performance memory closer to the chip, larger caches. Now what this article is talking about is like AI and ML and pushing that closer to the chip. So a lot of that data can be processed on the die and does specific things for speed ups. And then on top of that, they're saying like, okay, you know, on the software side, it means that software programmers have to do two things. One, like the algorithms have to keep getting better and better. But uh, one thing that I will read verbatim, which I thought was a really interesting quote, um, was what we're seeing more in AI will likely play out in all fields is that software engineers really need to start understanding the trade-off between performance of the system and precision of the system. Wu said, if they're somehow limited in bandwidth, energy, or otherwise, they turn it into a software problem. If they need more bandwidth, they can reduce the precision of the numbers, and they can train specifically for reduced precision or for sparsity. This is for machine learning models. Mm -hmm. It's like when you're doing it in an embedded scenario, you compress these models, and you actually reduce the precision. So having these like long double or floating point oh, numbers, right. you do in integer arithmetic. Um, mm -hmm. And you and you compress some, the the final model like for like you know TensorFlow Lite for example. And anyway, um, in the AI field, there is a holistic view of integration between software side of things and the hardware side. In the same way, over the last twenty years, programmers have been forced to become more architecturally aware, considering cache size and processor architecture. In the future, programmers this is a really interesting part. Um, in the future, programmers will have to be more cognizant about things like power limitations in the system and try to use tools and APIs that let them trade off power for performance. That evolution will happen. It'll take time. It's taken about a generation of programmers to really understand that you can't be as abstracted anymore in what the architecture looks like when you're writing your programs. And it's probably going to move in that direction even more in an, over the next 20 years. So it's going to wow. be interesting to see what happens on this front as we hit these limits and these chips become more and more specialized and do more things. 
I know we talked in the past about things like, you know, there's, there's errors on chips with calculations because the transistors are so small, you're getting into all those, you know, like, what is it called? Cross communication and things like that, like interference, basically. Yeah. I and mean, stuff that NASA's had to think about for a long time in space. Yeah. Radiation. We actually have all sorts of errors, you know, like bits flipping or things yeah. being based in. Yeah. You're getting to that point on Earth. Yeah. Well, they Just say like solar time. flares or things. There could be events that occur mm-hmm. that already are probably happening without us realizing it that can call. In fact, uh, I'm going to have to pull this article up. I, I don't off the top of my head Um, where this they believe there was a bug. I forget what it was in. And they basically have no idea happened. They actually think it may be because of that. Wow. Well, just no more Carrington events. <laughs> what is that? No, the Carrington event was, I think it was back in the late 1800s or early 1900s. It was, um, it was a, an event where there was a massive solar flare, an X-class solar flare. And Carrington was a scientist who was observing the sun's disk in an ob- observatory. You know, they would project it onto a big flat surface. Okay. And I think he saw a flash. Um, and within, I think it was 24 or 36 hours, I forget what the date is, um, all of a sudden, you know, because we had um, telegraph lines strung across the ocean, for example, right? Right. And power lines. And telegraph lines are being electric- electrified, and people who are tapping the telegraph will get severe shocks. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, you know, like uh, tr- long-distance transmission power lines would catch fire. There weren't that many of them back then. And this was large component electronics where like the, you know, the copper is like that big, you know? So imagine what that kind of event could do with little tiny devices. They're saying it could blast satellite technology and all sorts of stuff. And that happened a hundred years ago. So it's not, it's not impossible that another X-class solar flare could hit us head on and cause lots of damage to our infrastructure. So there's, it's almost like a ticking time bomb if you don't do something about it. That's interesting. It. I have to look that up. So yeah. the, for folks that are interested, the history of, of underground telegraph cables and how that all went about in those projects. Oh, yeah. Very, very interesting history. Yeah, I'm going to post just, I'll put it in the comments here. And like the actual, like the number of times it failed and what it took to like correct it. And I mean, it, it is actually amazing what people did to lay yeah, 1850, 1859. Yeah, 1859. So it was it was very very early. Um, Richard Christopher Carrington uh, recorded the earliest observations of the solar flare. This is fascinating reading. Um, if you ever want to read about like space weather, in fact, there's a website. If you're curious about the current space weather, it's I think NASA funded or something. Spaceweather.com, and they have you know, oh, it's fantastic. It's- the the first cable I think for was in 1867. Like so, only mm-hmm. one year after the civil U.S. Civil War. Wow. Late, you know, these underground cables are being laid. It's, it's pretty mind-boggling. It really is, and that stuff can be affected by this kind of thing. Yeah. Know? So anyway, check out spaceweather.com and the Carrington event. That's neat stuff. Um, and oh, yeah. so credit to that. It was uh, the the yeah. website is uh, semiconductorengineering.com, and the, the article is written by Ann Stafora. Uh, Sorry if I'm not saying your last name right. Mushler, Mushler, can't. I'm not sure much, Mushler, yeah, something like that. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. So there it is. So that's uh, Chariot's Techcast. If you want to subscribe to the Techcast, you can hit us up pretty much anywhere. It's just Chariot Techcast, and you'll find it on Apple. Uh, here's here's on our web page. We have an archive of it. Um, you can hit us up on Amazon Music. 
You can hit us up on iTunes, Spotify, you name it. So check it out there. And again, go to chariotsolutions.com slash, I'm sorry, go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions for all of our videos on our recent conferences. And, you know, send us feedback, techcast feedback at chariotsolutions.com is our email. And we'd love to hear from you. So that's it. So for this week in tech uh, chat, Tuesday thingy, whatever it is, I almost said someone else's podcast name. So for this week, my name is Ken Rimple. Sujan Kapadia. And I'll change my name next week. See you guys. Take care.